Professor Prusov, we were waiting for him, he's on his way. Um, for those of you who know uh, Yisa, uh, Professor Prusov, William Prusov was the sort of driving force behind the creation of Yisa. He's a professor emeritus of pharmacology, and he, was a senior, he is a senior research scientist in, in the School of Medicine at Yale to this day. He came to Yale University in 1953 uh, from Florida, um, and his great contributions in science and pharmacology was, this is an area that I know little about, but essentially he helped to create the first antiviral uh, medications, and, and this had a, a, a positive and profound impact on the fight against HIV. Um, and uh, Professor Prusov has been extraordinarily kind to Yisa and has donated a lot of his uh, energies and efforts and uh, kindness to many other organizations around the world. So uh, we're really honored for his uh, participation in, in our center and without him uh, the whole project would never have gotten off the ground. So I hope he'll come, he's on his way. His son Alvin is here and his wife is uh, waiting outside for, uh, for, for Professor Prusov, so I hope he'll come uh, later. So this is a special occasion uh, that we are um, really gracious, happy. We have uh, warm feelings for him. I think people that know Professor Prusov really know he's not just um, somebody who gives to tzedakah or charity and kind of disappears, but he's a very, he's an exemplary person that is very uh, kind and humble and uh, he's known for this uh, perhaps more than anything else. So we're proud to be connected to him. Um, so each year we have uh, special lectures in honor of Professor Prusov and this year we're, we're grateful and honored that uh, Usher Susser is with us today. Professor Susser will be speaking, uh, the title of this talk is Israel, Jordan and Palestine, one state, two states or three. Professor uh, Susser teaches in the Department of Middle East um, and African History at Tel Aviv University. His area of specialization is in history and politics of uh, particularly Jordan and the Palestinians, uh, notions or issues of re religion and the state in the Middle East, and Arab-Israeli issues. He was previously a senior fellow at the Myra and Robert Kraft Chair in Arab Politics at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. Uh, he was there in 2000-2008 and he's back there now. He's based there this year. He was the Director of External Affairs and Senior Research at the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle East and African Studies at Tel Aviv University. And it was the former Director of the Center in the 80s, 90s, and in, in, from 2001 to 2007. He's been a Fulbright Fellow He's been a visiting scholar at universities such as Cornell University and also the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He was educated, he received his PhD in Modern Middle Eastern History from Tel Aviv University and has won awards and, uh, and the like uh, throughout his career. He's written uh, and edited uh, several books including The Challenge to Cohesion of Arab States which he edited in uh, 2008. The Middle East, the Impact of Generational Change, Jordan, the Case Study of a Pivotal State, and this goes on, on and on in terms of his academic articles and writings. He's also widely published in uh, the higher, higher end of the international media and newspapers as well. So we're really honored and it's a privilege to have you here with us today.
Well, thank you very much, Charles, for your uh, kind introduction. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here in this august institution. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be associated with uh, Professor Prusov and to be able to uh, honor him. I'm, I'm very uh, honored to be the person honoring him. I, I think that is uh, a privilege for me. Um, the topic, uh, Israel, uh, Jordan and Palestine, uh, one state, two states or three, is the subject of uh, a project which has turned into a book that I've uh, just completed at the, the Crown Center in, uh, at Brandeis. And I was really provoked into, into writing this uh, because of the emergence in recent years of uh, what is called the one-state solution. That is, the idea that uh, instead of Israel and the Palestinians uh, settling their issues between them in two states, that is very difficult to achieve, so let there be one state. Um, which I think is an odd proposal, to put it mildly. Because the differences between the Palestinians and the Israelis are so great that they cannot solve their problems in two states, they should live together in one state and that will make life for both of them so much better. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's amazing. One of the arguments for the one-state solution is that the Israelis have settled the West Bank so heavily that there's no way of getting them out of the West Bank. So a two-state solution is not possible. And then again, so there should be a one-state solution. So because the Israelis cannot be convinced to give up 20% of historical Palestine, they should be convinced to give up 100%. Because the Israelis cannot be convinced to give up the West Bank, they should give up their entire state. Because let's face it, uh, the one state so-called solution is a euphemism for the undoing of Israel as we know it. That's what it is. And the Israelis are not likely to cooperate with this idea. And I will come back to discuss the notion uh, from the point of view of the Palestinians. Not all Palestinians think this is a great idea either. And it's very interesting to see which Palestinians support it and which don't. Um, and I will come to that uh, a little later. The other uh, issue I, I want to speak about, if you ask uh, Israel, Jordan, Palestine, one state, two states, or three, uh, I'm not talking about the West Bank and Gaza as two separate states. That's not what I'm, that's not my three. My three is Israel, Jordan, Palestine as three states. Is Jordan in this or out of it? To what extent can, be Jordan, can Jordan be a part of this? To what extent do the Jordanians really want to be part of and here uh, there are <clears throat> very different ideas about what Israelis think about this <clears throat> and what Jordanians think about it. And quite honestly, I think it's a good idea to ask the Jordanians what they think about it. And not, not what the Israelis think the Jordanians should think. <laughs> the Israelis have fantastic ideas about what it, what it is the Jordanians should think, but the Jordanians don't think so. 
And I was told a story by the former Deputy Prime, Deputy Prime Minister of Jordan, who happened to be uh, also the first Jordanian ambassador to Israel, Marwan Moasha, uh, who told me of a meeting he once had with uh, Bibi Netanyahu when he was uh, ambassador to Israel. And he explained uh, to uh, Bibi Netanyahu that Jordan did not want to retake the West Bank. So Bibi explained to Moasha that Moasha doesn't really understand the Jordanian interest. And Moasha was flabbergasted by this. You know, the audacity of it. How does Netanyahu explain to the ambassador of Jordan in Israel what the Jordanian interest is in the West Bank? Surely the Jordanian ambassador knows that probably better than Netanyahu. We, the Israelis, sometimes have a certain measure of arrogance which goes beyond the acceptable. <laughs> Where are we in this relationship in Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinians? Uh, I'd like to take this from uh, a kind of a, a broad sweep from uh, Oslo to the present. Not detailing the historical evolution, but to explain what I think the major developments have been in terms of how the parties, Israel and the Palestinians, uh, understand the process. There is what I call the Oslo dynamic. The Oslo dynamic <coughs> was the creation, for the first time ever, of an autonomous political entity for the Palestinians, in what was British Mandatory Palestine. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Gaza. The Palestinian Authority gave birth to some brand new institutions. The Legislative Assembly of the Palestinian Authority, the President of the Palestinian Authority, both of which, the President and the Legislative Assembly, are elected by the people of the West Bank and Gaza. Not by all Palestinians. Only by the people of the West Bank and Gaza. Institutionally, this is a historical turning point. The PLO, with whom we negotiated before, represented all the Palestinians everywhere. And the PLO represented all of Palestine. The Palestinian Authority, created through the Oslo process, represents only the West Bank and Gaza. That, for Israel, is a very positive change. It reduces the question of Palestine to the West Bank and Gaza. From the Israeli point of view, this is far better than the question of Palestine relating to all of Palestine. Reducing the question of Palestine to the West Bank and Gaza is creating the foundations of the two-state solution. It makes a distinction between two sets of political issues. Israel and the Palestinians have two sets of problems. One I call the 1967 file, 
the other I call the 1948 file. There were two great wars that Israel has fought with the Arabs that shaped the issues that we presently negotiate with the Palestinians. The Six-Day War, the conquest of the West Bank and Gaza, as a result of which we have to negotiate the future of the settlements, what would be the border between Israel and some Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, the future of Jerusalem, shall it remain united or divided? These are the 1967 issues. These are matters that relate to Israel's extent, to its size, but not to its being. This is the 1967 file. Then there is the 1948 file. Those issues that were created by the war in 1948. There are two of them. The refugee question, which we talk about all the time. Should the refugees from 1948 return to Israel proper or not? And of course, if they do, in large numbers, this will impinge upon the existence of the state of Israel. Not its size, but its being. Israel will not be the state of the Jewish people if hundreds of thousands or millions of Palestinian refugees return to Israel. The second 1948 question is the future status of the Palestinian minority in Israel itself. Not the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, but that million or so Palestinians who live in Israel as Israeli citizens who are somewhere around 20% of the population. In their mind, Israel cannot be the state of the Jewish people. Their argument is, if Israel defines itself as the state of the Jewish people, we as non-Jews are automatically excluded. Israel must redefine itself as the state of all its citizens. Now, Israel is the state of all its citizens, and these million Palestinians are citizens of Israel already. It's not as if Israel is a state in which only Jews are citizens. The Arabs are citizens too. Israel is the state of all its citizens, but they use this terminology as a means to undo the state of Israel as the state of the Jewish people. The state of all its citizens as an alternative formulation to Israel as the state of the Jewish people. So these both challenge, both of these 1948 issues, the refugee return and the status of the Arab minority in Israel, challenge Israel as the state of the Jewish people. They don't challenge Israel's size, whether we have the West Bank or don't have the West Bank. They challenge Israel's very being as the state of the Jews. So obviously, Israel is not keen to negotiate the 1948 file. One doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to work that one out. Israel is willing to negotiate the 1967 file, and even to make very far-reaching concessions on the 1967 file. But in the Israeli style of thinking, Israel can concede on much of 1967 in exchange for closure of the 1948 file. Israel will trade the 1967 issues for closure on 1948. That is how Israel thought the negotiation on the Oslo process should end.
And then with that kind of thinking, that Israel went to Camp David in the summer of 2000 to end the conflict on the basis of this trade-off, 67 for 48. The Palestinians can have pretty much the West Bank. Jerusalem can be divided according to an ethnic division, which means Jewish residential areas remain Israel, no matter if they're on the east side or the west side. And Arab residential areas become part of the state of Palestine. Basically, Barak, Ehud Barak, and Arafat, under the auspices of Bill Clinton in 2000, agreed in principle on this. What they did not agree upon, and what remained in abeyance and not agreed until today, is uh, the future of uh, what they call the Holy Basin, Temple Mount and its immediate environs. Just a few square kilometers, but obviously a very sensitive issue for both sides. And Israel will not agree, or has not agreed, to Palestinian sovereignty on Temple Mount, and the Palestinians won't agree to anything less. So Israel, Israel wanted end of conflict on the basis of this trade-off of 67 for 48, to which the Palestinians refused. What the Palestinians said, there is no way in which we can trade 67 for 48. 48 is the very backbone of our collective identity. Our defeat in 1948, what the Palestinians called the Nakba, the disaster, is the core of our collective identity. To expect us to trade off the refugee question for the 67 issues is unrealistic. To which the Israelis responded, if you think that Israel will trade 1967 for a reopening of the 1948 file, your expectations are unrealistic. Israel will not withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza and half of Jerusalem, only to have the existence of the state questioned further through the refugee question. So what has happened really in the last 10 years or so? is that on the 1967 file, the differences between the Israelis and the Palestinians have narrowed very significantly. <coughs> if you take Barak and the negotiations he had with Arafat, followed later by the negotiations by Ehud Olmert and Mahmoud Abbas in 2008, these Israeli prime ministers and these Palestinian leaders came to a wide range of agreements on the 67 questions. The differences on territory are minor, a few percentage points here or there. Much of the principles of how Jerusalem ought to be sorted out were also agreed. And very often you will hear people saying, we all know what the end result of the negotiation is. All they have to do is sign. But then one should ask oneself, if we all know exactly what the end result is, and the difference is only this big, as Yossi Bailin used to say, then why don't they sign? They don't sign. Because in, on the 1948 questions, not only have the differences not narrowed, they have widened. And in the last 10 years, the Palestinian position on the refugees has become harder and harder. And Israel's position rejecting 
refugee return has become tougher and tougher. Precisely because the expectations of the Israelis and the Palestinians were completely unmet. The Israelis thought they would trade 67 for 48. The Palestinians never had the slightest intention of doing so. And the Israelis were rather stunned to find out that giving up the West Bank and Gaza and half of Jerusalem was not going to end the conflict. It was only going to only reopen some endless discussion about how many refugees Israel was taking back. So we discovered in the year 2000, with the outbreak of the Second Intifada, and things have not changed dramatically since then, although with Olmert and Abu Mazen, the differences on the 67 file have narrowed even further. <clears throat> but the, the abyss on the 1948 question is as wide as ever. And now Israel, in order to counter the 1948 demands, Israel, as you must have noticed, has a new demand of the Palestinians. Israel demands of the Palestinians now to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. Israel did not ask for that 10 years ago. And Israel did not ask the Egyptians, for example, in the peace treaty, to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. Israel did not ask the Jordanians in their peace treaty to recognize Israel as a Jewish state either. Only do we ask this of the Palestinians. And Israel asks this of the Palestinians in order to close the 1948 file. Because if they do recognize Israel as a Jewish state, refugee return to Israel is not possible. If Israel is a Jewish state, then the Palestinian refugees will return to the state of Palestine and not to the state of Israel. And if they recognize Israel as a Jewish state, then the Arab minority in Israel would have to recognize Israel as a Jewish state too. And precisely for these two reasons, the Palestinians totally reject the Israeli demand on the Jewish state. Because they say, if we accept Israel as a Jewish state, we are abandoning the refugees, and we're abandoning the Palestinian minority in Israel. So the conclusion that we must come to in Israel is that both grand Zionist designs, that of the political left that promised us peace in our time, we will give the Palestinians land and in exchange for that we will get peace, is not so. And the grand design of the right, that we can have greater Eretz Israel, is pie in the sky also. Neither the right nor the left in Israeli politics have given us the grand answer to this Palestinian conundrum. It's clear that we cannot arrive at an end of concrete agreement with the Palestinians for the reasons I mentioned. Greater Eretz Israel is pie in the sky for very obvious reasons also. There are just not enough of us. And if we want Greater Eretz Israel, we can have it and become a minority in our own country in a short space of time. And if it is, the state of the Jews that we wish to be, you cannot do that in Greater Eretz Israel. You can have, as I say, Greater Eretz Israel, but with time it will become an Arab state in which the Jews will be the minority. 
the Zionist enterprise was based on a variety of different assumptions, two of which, at least, proved to be mistaken. The one was that in 1917, given the Balfour Declaration, Palestine under British occupation, the Turks having been defeated, the support of the British for the Balfour Declaration, the Zionists believed that Jews in huge numbers leaving Eastern Europe would emigrate to Palestine. And within a short space of time, 10 to 15 years, the Jews would be the majority in Palestine. There, at the time, there were only 600,000 Arabs in Palestine. The Zionists believed that something like 70 to 80,000 Jews would come to Palestine every year. And you do the math, in 10 years, the Jews are the majority. But the Jews came to America, as you know, and not to Palestine. And therefore, there were no Jews in Palestine. In 1930, the Jewish population was just over 100,000. The Arab population was then more than 600,000. What changed the equation radically was the 1930s. The events in Europe, the rise of Hitler, the anti-Semitic outbreak in Poland, and the emigration of hundreds of thousands of Jews to Palestine during the 1930s, at the end of which, in 1939, the Jews were half a million in Palestine. And that's already significant. That's the state of the making. It's that half a million who made Israel. The other assumption, however, was <clears throat> That Zionism was a pro progressive movement, modern, Western, and would bring great benefit to the Arabs of Palestine. And that though the Arabs of Palestine opposed the Zionists at first, they would eventually accept the Zionists. They would eventually embrace the Zionist enterprise, because it would do so much good to the Palestinians. Well, that uh, proved to be wrong, too. And in 1936, with the outbreak of the Arab Rebellion, Ben-Gurion came to the brilliant recognition of the following reality. The Jews could not have all of Palestine, because there were not enough of them. And if they wanted a state, they must agree to partition. And because of the hostility of the Arabs, which the Arab Rebellion showed so clearly, the Jews must also prepare for war. They must agree to partition and prepare for war. And I would say, we're still there. We must agree to partition and prepare for the continuation of the conflict. We will not get peace for the partition. But if we allow the status quo to continue, we will be gravitating towards the one-state reality. I don't like the term one-state solution because I don't think it's a solution. But if we just let the status quo continue, it will be one state. And it will be one state under Israeli authority, as I say, with a Jewish minority ruling over an Arab majority, 
And then the Israelis will face the question from the Arabs. Who will say, okay, you can have it all. Just let's have one man, one boat. And then it's the end of the story. Do we want to find ourselves fighting the South African game in 10 or 15 years' time? I'd rather not be there. Now, as I mentioned earlier, looking at the one-state, two-state conundrum, what do the Palestinians think of this? There are three major Palestinian constituencies. There are the Palestinians in Israel, the Arab minority in Israel. Israelis have referred to them for very many years as the Israeli Arabs. But this is a term that the Arabs in Israel don't like and don't use themselves. We are not your Arabs. Don't call us Israeli Arabs. Uh, we're Palestinians and we are part and parcel of the Palestinian people. We can like that more or like it less, but that's uh, their uh, definition of themselves. So there is the Palestinian minority in Israel. There is the Palestinian population in the West Bank and Gaza as the second constituency. And the third constituency is the Palestinian diaspora. The refugees in the Arab countries, the diaspora out here in America, all those who live outside uh, historical Palestine. Now these three constituencies don't share the same views about the future. They have different interests. The diaspora Palestinians tend to be the most radical. Sometimes comparable to the diaspora Jews also, more radical than the Israelis. It's all very easy for the diaspora people to be radical. They don't have to do anything about it. They can just be radical. The poor guys in the trenches have to be, uh, if radical, have to pay for it. So the radical diaspora of the Palestinians believes are the major pushes these days of the one-state idea. And you hear that all over the campuses in America. I don't know whether on this one, but you certainly hear it in many campuses from UCLA to uh, uh, BU and Boston University and UMass, and uh, Boston's very, very prominent in this particular, um, uh, I would say, evolution, where Palestinians and uh, their supporters are very active in the promotion of the one-state idea. Then you have the Palestinian minority in Israel. Amongst the intelligentsia, there is a considerable support also for the one-state idea. Because they, like the diaspora Palestinians, say, if you have two states, one in the West Bank and Gaza and Israel, it makes a difference to us. We in the diaspora and we the Arabs in Israel, it doesn't change our situation. A two-state solution is meaningless to the diaspora and to the Arabs in Israel. And therefore, amongst them, you find the least support for it. But the converse is true of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. There you find the highest level of support for the two-state solution. Although there it is eroding too. But there is no great enthusiasm there for a one-state solution. The reason being that they know as well as the Israelis know that a one-state solution will not be paradise in Wonderland, but hell on earth. 
And it's all very well for the people in uh, the University of Michigan to preach for a one-state solution. But the people out there, as I say, in the trenches, neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians, think that this is a great idea. Uh, the bloodletting you know, will be theirs, and the people in Michigan will maybe wring their hands in anguish, but uh, the people who will pay for it are out there. So you see on the Palestinian side, recently, a really, I would say from my point of view, an exciting initiative. Last summer, August 2009, the present Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, Salam Fayyad, issued his initiative for the creation of the institutions of a Palestinian state within the next two years, that is, from August 2009, that is in the summer of 2011, the Palestinians will declare that they have established institutions of their state and they will want the international community to recognize it. And this is a way of saying, whether the Israelis want to negotiate with us or not, we are going ahead with creating this two-state reality. And the Israeli response to that has been surprisingly mild considering the fact that you have a right-wing government in Israel. The government has said that this is a unilateral act, and the Israelis uh, would prefer this to be negotiated, and the Palestinians shouldn't be taking unilateral action. But on the quiet, the present Israeli government is actually helping the Fayyad initiative. First of all, it's not preventing it. It's not doing anything to constrain, to contain it. It could. Israel, if it wished to, could quash this overnight. <coughs> Moreover, as the Palestinian security forces take more and more control of the West Bank cities, so the Israelis are withdrawing. So the Israelis are removing checkpoints and roadblocks all over the West Bank, as a result of which the West Bank economy is now uh, flourishing like it hasn't for years. The West Bank economy grew last year by 7 to 11 percent, depends who you ask. And even if it is only 7 or if it is as high as 11, that's phenomenal considering what the rest of the world is doing economically. The possible outcome of this, if it is allowed to continue, is the creation of a two-state reality in a situation of less than full peace. This will not lead to a resolution of the Jerusalem question to its finality, and it will not lead to a resolution of the refugee question over which we have no basis for an agreement. Jerusalem and refugees will probably be left in abeyance for some time. But this could be a two-state reality with less than full peace. This is not the end of the conflict. But it could develop into something like a grand armistice. The likes of which we had with the Arab states in the aftermath of our War of Independence in 1948. We did not sign peace treaties with the Arabs, as you remember. We signed armistice agreements with all the Arab states. Armistice in Arabic is hudna. 
Now, even Hamas talks of a Hudna with Israel. So would Hamas acquiesce in this kind of armistice? It might. It would not be party to the negotiation, or it would not be party to this uh, evolution of a Palestinian state. After all, Salam Fayyad operates in the West Bank and with no cooperation with Hamas. But Hamas might acquiesce for lack of any better choice. It will be difficult for them to prevent it. And if they want to prevent it, they will have to go to war with Israel, which may have very, very severe consequences for them, as they must have learned from last year's experience. And since it isn't end of conflict, maybe Hamas would acquiesce. And you would have a kind of two-state reality with a grand ceasefire or armistice, and the tough questions of Jerusalem and refugees would be left in abeyance for some time later. This is not based on land for peace. Israel would essentially be conceding territory without getting real peace. And many people would say, could Israel possibly do that? I think a lot of people would argue, maybe most people would argue, that this is not a logical thing to do. You don't trade assets for nothing. But the question that one may ask about that is, then you have to believe that the West Bank and Gaza really are assets. I would argue that they have long ceased to be. And they are now an albatross around our necks. And they are a liability. Now one can, of course, speak about our historical rights, and I wouldn't doubt that for a moment. Uh, I've made my life in Israel, and all my life has been in Israel. I wouldn't think of it being anywhere else. <clears throat> I fought in all of Israel's wars since 1967, until I was too old to do it. And I was thrown out of the army in 1987, out of the reserves. But I even participated in the first intifada. So I, I've been around in the trenches for a while. But we have to ask ourselves what our purpose is. Is our purpose to be the state of the Jewish people? Or is our purpose to redeem Biblical Eretz Israel? You have to choose. You can't have them both. You can redeem Biblical Eretz Israel and become a minority in an Arab state. Or you can be the state of the Jewish people and not redeem Biblical Eretz Israel. Take your pick. My pick is clear. I believe that the Zionist enterprise was established first and foremost, and still is, the act of self-determination of the Jews, and it is the preservation of Israel as the state of the Jewish people. And to do so, we need a two-state reality. We need a two-state reality. Not doing the Palestinians any favors. We need it for ourselves. We need Palestine against which to define Israel. How do you preserve the peace if you have no agreement with the other side? It is preserved not by an agreement, 
but through deterrence. Look at the example of Lebanon and look at the example of Gaza. We fought a war against Hezbollah in 2006, another very successful war, as we all remember. But it had better results for Israel, and people recognized that. Hezbollah has not fired one rocket into Israel for four years. And there's no agreement between us. And it's not because there are Spanish troops in southern Lebanon, I assure you. It is deterrence. Which will last for a certain amount of time. And eventually deterrence wears thin. And we'll probably have another bout with Hezbollah, which will require us to establish our deterrence for another period. But if the alternative is to occupy southern Lebanon for the rest of time, obviously Israel prefers not to. Israel withdrew from Gaza unilaterally in 2005, and many people said it was a mistake. We reoccupied Gaza in 2009 and withdrew unilaterally again. If it was such a big mistake, we could have stayed there. But we decided to withdraw unilaterally again with no agreement. Having dealt Hamas a very serious blow in January 2009, more or less, they are keeping the peace now for about a year. Slightly more. Not perfect. There are still occasional rockets and mortars that fly out of Gaza. Usually, however, not by Hamas. But by other more radical people than Hamas. Uh, groups of Al-Qaeda and uh, Islamic Jihad and company, which Hamas is trying to actually restrain. But the people in southern Israel now have a life. People are buying houses in Zderot. The real estate market in Zderot is going through the roof. Much better than here, I assure you. So we must have done something right. And I would strongly suggest, if it were for me to suggest to the Obama administration, to help this two-state reality to emerge rather than trying to resolve all problems for all time in no time, because they will fail again. And when the U.S. fails for the umpteenth time, we will be thrown back into the battlefield. Turning to the U.S., or the U.S. assuming the role of the ultimate umpire, it's like talking to God. And then he fails you. So what do the locals do, having spoken to God? In their desperation, they end up back in the battlefield. That's exactly what happened to us in 2000, after Bill Clinton played God. And we don't need Obama to do this again. Make a distinction between what is doable and what is presently undoable. And aim to achieve the doable and leave the undoable for later. Time is ticking by, <clears throat> so I will just very briefly make one comment on Jordan and its, and its role, and we'll conclude with that so that we can have some discussion. And I'm sure I've said a few things that have aggravated at least some people. <clears throat> Those who think that because the Palestinians are not doing too well in state-making, that we can invite the Jordanians to take over the West Bank and they will do so for, on our behalf are completely mistaken. The Jordanians don't have the slightest intention of doing so. It is for them 
to be co-occupiers with the Israelis, or simply to replace the Israeli occupation. The Jordanians, as you know, have a huge Palestinian population in Jordan itself. About half the population. Not 70 to 80 percent, as people like to imagine. But about half, maybe slightly more than half. For Jordan to absorb the West Bank as well, undoes the Jordanian state as a state of the Jordanian people. The Jordanian political elite doesn't have the slightest intention of handing themselves over to a two-thirds Palestinian majority. So the expectation that the Jordanians will just walk in and pull the chestnuts out of the fire for Israel or for the US or for anybody else is completely unrealistic. And the Egyptians won't do it in God's eyes. So this is just uh, wishful thinking. But in the long run, if a binational state between Israelis and Palestinians is not a realistic solution, a Jordanian-Palestinian confederation in the long run is a realistic option. The Jordanians and the Palestinians speak of the possibility of confederation as two sister peoples after the creation of a Palestinian state, but only after the creation of a Palestinian state. Not that the Jordanians will come and substitute for the Palestinians and take over the West Bank instead of a Palestinian state. That the Jordanians will not do. But a confederation sometime in the future is more realistic. And this may very well flow from the geopolitical reality that would result from an Israeli withdrawal from uh, much of the West Bank. The West Bank is landlocked territory. Landlocked between Israel and Jordan. If Israel disengages from the West Bank, the West Bank has nowhere to go except to Jordan. Jordan is the only other outlet. And the more Israel disengages from the West Bank, the more the West Bank will become dependent on Jordan and on the Arab hinterland further in, Iraq and the Persian Gulf, uh, etc. So that does make sense. And when I speak about one state, two states, or three, there is a Jordanian people who deserve a state of their own. There is a Palestinian people who equally deserve a state of their own. And there are the Israeli people who equally deserve a state of their own. Neither one of these three would like to be devoured by any one of the others. Israel does not want to become Palestine. Palestine does not want to become Israel. And the Jordanians don't want to become Palestine or Israel either. So it is three states. One for Israel, one for Palestine, and one for Jordan. And maybe, in the long run, a Jordanian-Palestinian confederation of sorts. So thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sasser. And we have time for a Q&A. And I'd like to take the program and start off. Um, so thank you very much for... Uh, an overview of the situation. And, um, I don't know, on a personal note, I think the project that you're speaking of is one that would be, I think, a solution that many people would ascribe to. It's one that I certainly ascribe to now, and I, and I was engaged in before the second But in your presentation, for me, correct me if I'm wrong, it's your area of expertise, to me the elephant in the room is Iran. 
and you didn't mention Iran, and I was wondering why. Um, the second intifada, as you know, is very different than the first intifada in terms of the ideology that's driving it, and the influence of Iran has changed since the, certainly since the second intifada. In the last several years, the United States defeated two of its of Iran's greatest enemies, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Iran has been emboldened. It now is a um, one of its proxies, as you know, as you know, is Hamas. It controls Gaza. Lebanon is under its another proxy of Iran. Turkey seems to be turning away from the West and perhaps gazing towards the Shiite crescent. There's divisions between Shiites and Sunnis in the Arab world. Perhaps. Some Sunni countries are actually turning to Israel for help or guidance or support at some level. So this is sort of, there's a transformation of the Middle East and a transformation, I would suspect, of Palestinian politics and, and the possibility of a two-state solution. How, how does this fit into the equation? We have the rise of genocidal anti-Semitism. We have a rise of a social movement that, that, that wants to do away with nation states and the influence of the, the West and the Crusaders and, and the like. And it's one that is really threatening stability. And is it possible to find a solution in these circumstances if, for example, the, the present economic development in the West Bank is successful and the Israelis withdraw, can uh, Fatah maintain power? If the Israelis withdraw, will Hamas take power easily? Some people suggest it's very possible. Um, and people like Brzezinski that have put their stamp on the Obama administration, in my opinion, you know more than I, but this is my opinion, um, that we have to somehow solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict first before we can deal with the Iranian, uh, Iranian aspirations, including the annihilation of the Jewish people in the region. I, I find that very difficult, and I find that actually a form of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, in the various stages of its, uh, of its inceptions, as we study in our center, Anti-Semitism has one common denominator, that if, when the world saw religion as the uh, focal point uh, of, of perceiving reality, people thought if the Jews would only change, the, the world would be saved. When people saw a nation, race, and ethnicity, and the Jews were the wrong race and poisoning the white race, if the Jews were eliminated, the world would be saved. And I think today some actually believe that if the Israelis stop being so stubborn and, and find the solution and sign, that we're so close to signing our, our agreement, that if only the settlements would be frozen and there would be a peaceful uh, resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that jihadism and the threat to the West will disappear and the world will be saved once again. This, from our reading, I think, or some of the people study anti-Semitism is very problematic and dangerous. So how, how do you take into account this very serious dynamic to this whole issue? And I think it would be in the interest of the Iranians to squash any possible secular development in the West Bank and a peaceful so solution to this. Well, first of all, I, I don't disagree with your, uh, your portrayal of what is happening in the region. I've, uh, I've written a lot about it, and uh, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, I, I wrote an article in, I think it was in 2003, which I called The Decline of the Arabs. And that article essentially outlined the rise of Iran and Turkey as uh, the new regional superpowers. I mean, so I've uh, sort of uh, been part of this thesis for a long time. And I don't disagree at all. The question is, what does that have to do with the future of the West Bank? Now, let's say we hang on to the West Bank. What if everything you've just said will change? 
Let's say we hang on to the West Bank. Will the Iranians be listening? Will Hezbollah and Hamas disappear? Will Zelensky go home? None of this will happen. Nothing will change. It will all be just the same. But we will also become an Arab state in the process. And I see absolutely no reason that will drive me to support the idea of putting Israel in the position where we lose the Jewish majority. Now, Iran, whether we have the West Bank or not, is a problem for us that we will have to deal with uh, one way or another. Uh, but I will quote a uh, good authority on this issue. Eric Barak, Israel's Minister of Defense, was in Washington in February 2010. And Eric Barak gave a lecture at the Washington Institute. Eric Barak started off by saying that the number one strategic threat to Israel is the fact that we do not have a border with the West Bank. He didn't put Iran first. He spoke of Iran later. He said the number one threat to Israel's existence is the fact that we have no border with the West Bank. And I would agree with him. And I, you can rest assured that Barack understands the strategic implications of Iran and its uh, surrogate <coughs> players, etc., uh, very well. So I simply don't see this is one basket of issues. Iran and the regional changes are very serious problems that Israel has to deal with. But hanging on to the West Bank doesn't help me solve that problem. Uh, now, taking, taking over the West Bank by uh, a Palestinian uh, state of, of sorts is not a solution. I did not mention the word solution once. I don't think it is a solution. All I'm saying is it's a way of preserving the two-state reality. Not preserving the two-state reality will have us slide down the slippery slope into a one-state reality where we will be the big losers. And we won't be able to turn the clock back. We should not arrive at that point, irrespective of Iran or Hezbollah, which are other issues that we have to deal with, with other means and, and have to do with other things. The West Bank exposes one of the greatest weaknesses of the whole Zionist enterprise. The fact that there are only five point something million of and that's not going to change very dramatically, unless all of you come to Israel next week, which I, I don't think is going to happen. Some, somehow, I don't think so. Uh, we have this problem. And we have to face it now. We should have faced it 10 years ago. We're already dealing with this a lot too late. And Iran and Turkey uh, have their place, but it's not in this equation. It is in another equation. Uh, and if we hang on to the West Bank because we say, well, maybe Hamas will take over and maybe Iran will influence Hamas, what we are doing is jeopardizing the existence of Israel as the state of the Jews. And I think there is no reason that uh, should make us do that. Because then we are undercutting our very resonance. And I keep on saying when I have these discussions that we must always bear in mind what our number one priority is. And in my mind, the number one priority of the Jewish people is the preservation of Israel as the state of the Jewish people. Not the defeat of terrorism, and not the defeat of Iran, and nothing is more important than the preservation of Israel as the state of the Jewish people. Everything is subordinate to that. 
we may remain in the West Bank and in Gaza and be more secure. But we will also become an Arab state in the end. So what, what's in it for us? Is that more secure? Uh, that was the whole fight about Gaza. And Arik Sharon, as I'm sure you know, uh, was not exactly naive. He may have been many things, but naive he wasn't. <laughs> and Arik Sharon saw the light uh, a little late in his life, but saw it and completely changed his idea when it's actually the demographers who got to it and put the numbers on the table. And Arik changed his whole way of thinking. And I think the change he went through uh, was very timely, and I'm only sorry uh, that a man of his uh, gravitas uh, didn't remain healthy enough to get us through the second phase, which would have been dealing with OSMAC. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, my, my claim to fame is that you were my camp counselor when I was 13. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> that was in Israel in 1963 or 64? 63, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm happy to you know who I am. Yes. Uh, if you don't mind, 